Hello people, hello everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Pokemon. I am your friend, Veteran Lucas, and with me is the man, the myth, the Magikarp. Give it up for Professor Collins. How you doing, Professor? Hey guys, welcome back! Wait a second, did you just call me a Magikarp? Because if anyone was a Magikarp in this duo, I think we know who it'd be. It'd be you, because Magikarp is lame. In fact, it's so lame, so lame, that no one likes it. You can't even eat it. Okay, whoa, whoa. Don't take that tone with me, Professor. Listen, we can take this fight outside after this, because right now we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects in Pokemon, and we're going to need all your teeth to articulate it. <laughs> really, huh? So is it the smell of the corpse flower, your own ego, or how misguided Magikarp fans can be? Nope. Better than all of that. Pack your bags, pack your tan legends, because we are going to be talking about the Alola region. Ooh, what about it? Everything we can cram into 30-ish minutes. The climate, the animals, the evolution behind it, the culture behind the tapus, all of that together as much as we can and how it ties to the Pokemon world. All right, let's see if you can back it up, man. Drop that NPR beat. Cue the music. Alright, Professor, so now that we're talking about Alola, we gotta talk of what it's based off of. Do you know... Have you ever been to Hawaii? I I have never been to Hawaii. Wait, what did you I just say? I think it's Hawaii, I thought. I have, I, have a, I have a friend who lives out there. I thought it was Hawaii. Well, people know what we're talking about. Yes, okay. the, the island. So, <laughs> Islands. With Hawaii... It is a massive chain of volcanic activity, so every now and again the volcanoes will erupt, they'll create more land and mass, which is still going on today, and over time, plants, and therefore animals, and therefore people, eventually found their way throughout the millions of years that it's been around. Now, with islands like- They weren't like dropped by aliens? No, leave, no, no, no aliens, none of that, we're not going to go history channel on this. This was okay. evolution at its finest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> With um, all these plants and all these animals ever being put onto the island, this is a natural process that occurs with islands. Uh, animals will find their way there either by drifting there on driftwood, they'll find their way there by with coconuts and seeds floating onto the water out there. There's so many different ways that life can find their way onto the islands. Or in birds' cases, just easily island hop over and over again eventually till they get there. So they lucked out. You know what? I gotta say it. Now, uh, 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 life we'll find a way. Ooh, wow, our second episode and we're already doing Jurassic Park references. Kudos, props to you, my friend. <laughs> now, speaking <laughs> speaking of Jurassic Park, we're going to talk a little bit about evolution. Okay. So, in islands, <laughs> and on islands, things get a little bit weird when it comes to how things evolve. Uh, you see, on islands... That's where, I mean, that's where you get all of Darwinism, in fact, was islands. Yeah. And the reason that Darwin found these unique species was because islands are separated from a main population, are dealing with limited resources, and they can't really go anywhere else to get more genetic information. You can't just meet your neighbor down the road for a cup of tea. You are stuck with who you're stuck with. So animals had to get very specialized in where they're living, and once they found their way on the island, they're pretty much there for good. This leads to some of the most biodiverse and crazy cool wildlife, and we'll get to those as we get to the Pokemon. Uh, my favorite forms of evolution come from something known as insular gigantism and insular dwarfism. You said giant and dwarf, and all I can think of is D&D. <laughs> okay, so insular gigantism and dwarfism are what happens when you're on an island, and because of the resources on that island, you either get super duper big or super duper small. 
So in the case of Super Duper Big, uh, this happens with animals that are going to have fewer predators on the island. Let's uh, let's use uh, crickets and grasshoppers as an okay. example. Uh, there is a group of uh, grasshopper-like animals called the Wettas. Uh, one of the relatives is found in Texas. It's called the Jerusalem Cricket. It's about the size of two quarters, so your typical cricket grasshopper-sized insect. Then you go to New Zealand. Oh, these are the big ones, right? The ones that are like, like oh, those, they are sitting on top of your hand and you're literally feeding them a carrot Aww. large. These are massive, massive insects. I think it's adorable. Most other people run in terror, but because it has no predators, it doesn't run in terror from anybody. There's nothing really that's going to go after and eat it. So it's allowed to gather as much food as it needs, get as big as it wants, and that's how it's going to survive on that island because it doesn't have anything limiting it on the other end of that spectrum you're going to have dwarfism so this is going to happen when animals have limited resources and have to adapt to a smaller area with that my favorite example are elephants uh professor how big would you say an elephant typically stands i don't know um 15 feet yeah around that um they're going to be around the size of a one-story house uh they are quite large animals uh the people have been riding them for thousands of years but what people need to know is that they weren't just limited to um, Asia and Africa. In fact, there were some groups that wandered over to the European side on land bridges, and some of them got trapped on islands. Uh, they got trapped because the land bridges closed up, and now they're stuck on an island with very little food compared to where they normally be and not as much space. That means that if you're bigger or stronger of the elephants, now you need more food, which you really can't get to. So you are now left to starve. The smaller elephants, they're the ones who make it. And over the years, over the generations, they get smaller and smaller and smaller till eventually you get miniature elephants, which we have fossil evidence of, that are about the size of a Great Dane. These are a meter tall dog-like elephants that existed because they just didn't have enough food to keep up that so super-sized like, like body. So like uh, the pygmy elephants over in Borneo. Exactly. If you have a limited number of resources and you need to move into small tight places like say the jungles of Borneo, you are going to have to be that little bit smaller. Okay, cool. I'm just imagining like an elephant yeah, the size really... of a Great Dane. That'd be a cute pet. It would be great to take into PetSmart. I'm sure they'd have no <laughs> problems with that whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so now that we've covered all that basics up, let's get to the meat of this. Let's start talking about some Pokemon. Yes! All right, so now that we got the native Hawaiian stuff out of the way, Let's talk about Alola. Let's talk about the Pokemon region. Uh, for starters, uh, let's bring up one of the key features in Island Evolution. Let's talk about Charles Darwin and Charles Darwin Finches. So for those who maybe didn't get the education or didn't get a chance to learn about him, Charles Darwin was one of the founders of the theory of evolution. He chose to sail to the Galapagos Islands down near Colombia, and he studied those islands. He studied the animals and the plants living there in order to make his case for evolution because they were on islands they were separate and so they were they were different like we said a second ago yeah. because they were on the islands they had that chance to diversify and had the chance to make adaptations to survive in unique environments and so that allowed him to make those connections exactly it's one of the founding reasons why we have biological and evolutionary theory today uh, oricorio is based off that similar principle it's based off the idea that the same animal can adapt to four different islands. Now, with Oricorio, it changes typing. It's, it doesn't really change too much when it comes to beaks, but its form and looks change because of where it's living. Now, because of where it's living, uh, this animal is cap this Pokemon is capable of uh, adapting with its typing. Now, 
It would be one thing just to put them on random islands, but Pokemon took it a step further, and they made it so every island that it was on, it was the dominant typing. This is the dominant of all the typings there. The fire one is where grass types are found. The ghost and psychic versions are found in areas where there are fighting types. The electric one is found near water and flying types. So this is evolutionary theory at work and adapting to its surroundings. Now, Orikoro, uh, it was actually, we don't think it was based off the finches uh, by the beaks. We think it was inspired by the Hawaiian honey creepers. These are small little birds that adapted to going after different flowers. Now, each species did have their own unique flower. Um, an Oricoro's dancing might actually derive from some of the mating dances of this bird. Well, speaking of dancing, you know, um, I think it's really cool to talk about the cultural references here, especially the fact that you have four very distinct and unique cultures here. You look at the dancing styles, you know, you have cl clearly you have flamenco, you have cheerleading, um, you have the hula, and then you have uh, some Japanese dance. Uh, the uh, I'm going to butcher this, buyo. Um, <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> I probably did. Um, and, but the thing is that, you know, what I really liked about it was just the inclusion of these real world cultures. And I, I honestly thought, but that's just me, just because thinking about, and we'll talk about it later, about hints in, in the Generation 6 game that we are going to Hawaii. Um, I honestly thought because we have flamenco dancer that this may be a sign that we will be going to Spain next. Uh, I'm hopeful, man. Architecture would be gorgeous oh, in that game. You know what? I'm shooting for Africa or Australia, so hopefully at least one of us will be right, so at least one of us will be happy. There we go. One of us can be happy. Only one. No, there can be only one. <laughs> or none of us. You know, Pokemon's pretty big and whatever they choose. Let's just move on. I'm kind of getting tired of talking about this bird. Okay, so let's go ahead and talk about Crabrawler. Now, uh, Crabrawler, a lot of times when you bring it up, people get a little bit testy because they wanted it to be a water type. Oh, dude, we need, like, a good competitive water fighting type so bad. And I, anyone who says Polyrath, like, you suck. Like, I'm sorry. I get it's viable. I mean, it's not even really that viable VGC 2017, but I know it's gotten some usage, but it's not, like, competitive to where you could use it year after year. We need a good water fighting type. Well, you're not going to get it from Crabrawler. So Crabrawler is based off the coconut crab. And unlike what most people would think, crabs do not all live in the water. In fact, if you put a coconut crab in the water, it would quite literally drown. It's <laughs> <laughs> awful. It, it is quite awful, but the coconut crab still needs salt water. It needs to coat its gills. So what it does is it takes salt water from the ocean, puts it on its gills, and then goes about its daily life. Think of it like a reverse scuba suit. Now, because of that, this animal has to try and be able to survive off something. And so what it learned to do, being the largest invertebrate on land, it climbs up coconut trees, cuts down the coconuts, husks them, takes them a day or two, and then they're able to munch on the inside. So they're mostly going to be herbivores that feed off those coconuts. That's why you find them in the big piles out in the game, because they were feeding off those. Afterwards, you get Crabominable. And Crabominable is where I think... Pokemon might have skipped a line or two with this animal because it's based off something called the horsehair crab, what was called the Yeti crab when it was first discovered. And so they said, ah, oh, Yeti crab, it must be found on a mountain. So they put it up on a mountain. <laughs> and that's, it's literally, um, the horsehair crab is literally found in the exact opposite place. It is found in the deep, dark trenches in the darkest parts of the ocean next to thermal vents you know what getting it right is what other games do 
Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Just we got it right a couple of other times. Let's just really mess up here. Uh, the hairs that <laughs> the hairs that Crabomitable people think that it has just to make sure it's oh that it's staying cool or staying warm or anything like that. It's not for any sort of temperature. It's for making sure that toxic chemicals around the vent it's feeding uh, get a little bit more purified. There are certain chemical and bacteria that live there that help to purify the water around them. So that's why they have the hairs. Not for staying warm, but you know, just to help eat better next to toxic thermal vents. <laughs> All right, so aside from Crabomitable, aside from Oricorio, I wanna talk about a bit of some of the human impact that happened with Hawaii and how that relates to the game. Uh, now, when the first game first came out, one of the biggest complaints was that there were too few Pokemon in Alola. Now, this could be because they just didn't have enough ideas or they didn't wanna put enough in, but my theory is that it's related to the actual islands themselves and specifically to two new Pokemon that were put into the game, Young Goose and Alolan Rattata. Now, uh, when you play Sun and Moon, um, you'll notice that Young Goose is only found in the day and Alolan Rattata is found at night. Now, a lot of people think that this is a, oh, well, just find it during the day, find it during night, differences, ha ha ha, but it goes deeper than that. It goes into the actual history of Hawaii and how humans found that they could well, they tried to improve it, and they ended up messing it up pretty bad. <gasps> it sounds like a European thing. Oh, it is very much a European thing. Okay. Uh, so what happened was, when the sailors came to trade and to grow sugarcane on the island, one of the things that happened was they released rats on accident. So rats were coming on the ship, and then they were leaving the ships and going onto the island. There was nothing that really hunted them on that island, aside from a few scarce owls or other larger birds of prey but aside from that there wasn't really much so in their infinite brilliance the sailors to prevent their sugarcane from dying came up with an amazing solution they were going to import a whole new species in to deal with the rats ah uh, not it was not a great idea no. they chose the small asian mongoose it's an animal that feeds primarily on rodents and snakes, and it's very vicious when getting its food. So they thought this is going to be the perfect solution to solve this problem. But there was one slight hiccup. Can you guess what that hiccup was? Uh, it was vegetarian. No, somehow even worse than that. Okay. Um, the mongoose, the mongoose turns out, was a diurnal species. A diurnal species is the opposite of a nocturnal, where it has to be up during the yes. day. Rats primarily are up at night. That means that these animals never met each other, so they could never meet ever. The mongoose can't eat them. So all you're left now is an animal species that eats all the birds and bird eggs during the day, and then you have another species that eats all the bird, bird eggs, and sugar cane at night. That's awful. It is awful, and it's one of the reasons why I think the Alola region doesn't have as many of those natural Pokemon. When you release things onto islands, because they're so fragile and diverse, they aren't really prepared to deal with things like mongooses and rats, animals that we take for granted here because we have things that eat them. But on islands, that is not the case. They really have to... Um, um, specialize in surviving there and those rats and those mongooses really throw it out of whack. I think Nintendo should pay you as their PR guy. Oh, I really think they should. It would be a nice change of pace from the pay I usually this make. This is why we didn't put so many new things in it, guys. It was scientifically accurate. Yes, this will definitely work. They will totally believe us. This is it. Now, <laughs> 
a human interaction wasn't all bad with the islands. Um, one animal actually did get a little bit of recognition, and that was the wreath triggerfish. You might know it as Bruxus. Bruxus, uh, the really pretty, crazy clown-looking one with the wicked smile. When people saw, uh, we were like, "Whoa, what? What is that?" Oh. Be respectful, because that is the state fish of Hawaii. A trigger fish are found all throughout the world, but this one is specifically known for using its teeth, uh, those big, luscious, strong jaws, to crush sediment and also be able to shoot jets of water in order to locate small invertebrates, so little crabs and crustaceans under the uh, under the sediment. Ew. Now, Hawaiians had a very strong um, connection with this fish. They have it in songs and a lot of their history, so it has a true Hawaiian name. Now, I am not going to pronounce it. So I'm going to let the professor announce it and let him embarrass himself. Uh, professor, I, I apologize it's all yours. to any listeners out there. <laughs> okay. Um, so I just want to state that I, I think there's like 28 letters here. Um, it's it's pretty great. Um, okay. Humu humu nuku nuku apawa. Hey, not bad. You've been practicing. <laughs> or you could just use the uh, shortened phrase, humu humu. Um, the full words literally mean trigger fish with snout like a pig. Yeah, it, it looks like that. <laughs> but hey, man, props to you. You actually, you got it pretty I like out. I like the literal names. <laughs> that, that's that's great. If only <laughs> if only more English animals were named that. Striped horse. Zebra. Done. <laughs> that would make it so much easier. All right, let's go on. Now, all right, so I do have one more Pokemon I want to talk about before we get to more of the cultural side of Hawaii. And that is going to be with... Alolan Executor. Now, as a Floridian, I think I am entitled to say that I know more about palm trees than you. Is that correct? Uh, probably. Okay, good. Uh, now, for starters, let's go over some facts about palm trees. One, they are not a tree. They are not. They are a, technically a type of grass. What? Yep. Spoiler alert. Uh, so, one of the definitions for being a tree is that you have to have your nutrients carried on the outside through things like bark, like an oak tree. For palm trees, they don't have bark on the outside. In fact, their nutrients is carried through their core in the middle. That's why when a hurricane beats them down, they're not getting their bark ripped off or falling apart. They're very flexible and very capable of bending, very similar to grass. Okay. Now, with that being said, a lone executor is huge. And people were wondering, well, why is it so big? Why is it so doofy looking? Um, when you live near palm trees, you see a lot of them of a lot of different heights. Um, palm trees in tropical environments tend to be a whole lot bigger, mainly because they need to be. They need to be able to get more sunlight through some of the thicker trees. They have more nutrients to work with. Uh, these are trees that are going to need to be much, much taller than their smaller, stouter counterpart. Now, Kanto, where the original executor is found, is a temperate climate, so it doesn't need to be that big and tall. In fact, it gets colder there, so it probably wants to stay more stout. Uh, the other complaint I got was, why is it a dragon type? That was actually a lot easier to explain. It's based off the Madagascar dragon palm. So it's just based off another tree. And they decided that that was a good enough reason to give it a dragon typing. Sorry, Charizard. You're not getting it. The tree's getting it first. <laughs> now, of the last argument I want to go over with um, Alolan Executor is that people think that the Alolan version is the original and Kanto is the fraud. Um, it's actually the verse, the reverse. Kanto would probably be the original, and the Alolan version would be the invasive new one. Um, just like in Hawaii. Of Hawaii, most of the palm trees were brought by people. Most of the palm trees floated in there later on. Really, really cool to see all of that, because with 
all of these on plant life living there, a lot of people assume that, oh, well, it's all natural. Well, it really isn't. In fact, it's about as natural as American as apple pie, even though apple pie was created by the Dutch. It just becomes so commonly associated with that that people assume that it's the natural way of doing things, when in fact, it can be quite the opposite. All right, so I want to talk about tapu. And... Oh, really? So, wait, so I thought the tapus were just something they made up. They just took a Hawaiian word and threw it all together. No, 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 tapu. Tapu is an actual thing. So, tapu is actually... Um, and so I want to clarify that there's a difference between Polynesian culture and Hawaiian culture um, because the people of Hawaii, um, while being descendants of other Polynesian cultures traditionally, there's it's just kind of like how we talked about evolution changes when you're secluded. There... Uh, religion and uh, cultural practices kind of changed at once they migrated to Hawaii. Gotcha. But uh, so Polynesian culture has this concept called tapu, which is the idea of something being kind of holy or sacred, and it's it's almost a restriction. And it's so these cultures actually have a lot of rules and prohibitions, and so the word um, tapu actually is the foundation for the word taboo, oh, like taboo. Really. Yeah, it was a mis it was a mispronunciation, you know. Yay, <laughs> yay, white people. Wow, thanks, Europeans. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it was Captain Cook actually. Um, but Captain yeah, so <laughs> yeah, everything everything great in Polynesia can be traced back to Cook. Um, and I'll come back to him in a second. But anyway, so I want to go quick here because there's a there's a lot. We probably gonna made a whole episode about these guys. The uh, Maori, I hope I'm saying that right. People of New Zealand and uh, Tongan. Uh, if you, you know the friendly island um, or Tonga, they have traditions in which, like, if something is tapu, it's considered like sacrosanct. So things that are tapu have to be left alone. So, and I feel like this ties in exactly perfect, like, with the game's dialogue and the temples to the tapus, because essentially, you know, you get this feeling that other people aren't there for a reason, because it's sacred. You're not to disturb it. And so this concept often was used by priests to kind of protect resources as well. So they would declare something or a fishery as tapu to ensure that they didn't overly use a resource. So it was it was almost like it was almost a it was almost a form of regulation. That is sustainable fishing. Yeah, I know. And so it, it's and I'm gonna do a few more things here about these cultures. But yeah, it was it's really interesting to look at the ways their rules and their interactions worked. So um, early, so I'm going to move on from Tapu's here for a second because we got a lot to get through. Um, so early Hawaiian religions, while it did some resemble <coughs> the other Polynesian religions, it was largely focused on natural forces and, uh, over other stuff. And so we looked at the importance and value that you get from things like the sky or the tides and even volcanic activity. So they recognized the benefits of volcanic activity. And so these characteristics were reflected in their early gods. Uh, and I hope I pronounce these right. Kane, um, who's the uh, god of sky creation. Lono, the god of rain, peace, and fertility. Uh, Kanaloa, the god of the ocean. And Ku, the god of war. Um, and so, you know, something cool here about this though, so these four gods, which are essentially the bases of the tapus, um, the tikis for these gods, they it, when I was looking at them and the statues for them, they really reminded me of the zimus for the tapus with the large brown body, which essentially, if you think of like what a tiki is, or tiki, you know, the tiki statues. 
Yeah. And yeah. the the headpiece, which is similar to like a headdress that would be worn, um, because the tapus become the headdress. And so when you looked at the, the four statues, that was the thing that was different between each of the four statues was the headdress and the rest of the statues were the same it's impressive again the thing i love about all of that is that these cultures recognize sustainable fishing practices hundreds of not thousands of years before the modern day man did and that's very very cool well and you want to and we want to be careful here we don't want to re, like label them as progressive or anything because it, that's very eurocentric and it, it it removes the fact that no matter how much you or i will deny it america's roots are greatly <laughs> embedded within European culture and European viewpoints and the truth is is that though the, these practices and their beliefs you know the the fact that they had restrictions on things and regulations um, those would not have been seen as as valuable to Europeans and Americans and so it's kind of why, you know, you saw these cultures kind of get pushed over, it which is. is kind of depressing. So, tell me more about some of these gods. Yeah, okay, sure thing. All right, so let's talk about Tapu Koko. Um, so Tapu Koko, he's based on the Hawaiian god uh, Ku or Kukuilamoku. I hope I said that right. I'm really sorry. I butcher English words, let alone other languages. So I greatly apologize, and I'm not that trying to laugh. That sounded to me, man. Well, I just want to explain good. to our audience, you know, I'm not trying to laugh here because I find other languages funny. I don't. I have friends from all over the planet, um, luckily, because of me. I went to international college. and But the thing is, like, I recognize that I have enough trouble with English, <laughs> let, uh, just pronunciation, let alone looking at words that are totally new to me. So anyways, Ku actually, he's the god of war, and he was so Ooh. violent that he his rituals often in, or did include things like human sacrifice, which Ooh. was not seen to other gods in, in these I don't cultures. think they put that in the game. <laughs> yeah, um, and so here's a cool thing. So when I saw statues uh, of Ku here, um, they reminded me instantly of Strange Souvenir. And I know we talked about it earlier about the Orikoro, uh, kind of, I think it's pointing to we're going to Spain. But when I saw that strange souvenir, and, and there wasn't hesitation, I knew we were going to Hawaii next. Like I just knew because I recognized the uh, the design there. And so, uh, Ku was actually the guardian of uh, King Kamehameha the first, who was recognized as erecting monuments to the deity. So the these the monuments that he erected were the ones I were looking at, and these are the ones where I said like it reminded me of looking at the strange souvenir. So it's really cool actually this whole like full circle thing because here's the other thing is Coco kind of looks like King Kamehameha's head the crown specifically Ooh. yeah uh, just sort of I'm not sure if that was the intentional connection there um, but it, it, it reminded me going through pictures here um, the other thing though is that Coco very clearly and it's not clear why has some sort of design with, with like a rooster it, um, it does look like an electric chicken yes the only thing I can think of was that it was chicken fights that <laughs> <laughs> because it made sense, you know. We got a violent, violent god of war, chicken fights. I don't know. That was the only thing I could. That was the only parallel I could draw there. Yeah, it kind of matches the anime a bit, doesn't it, though? Yeah, and that's what I was gonna say. So the anime, his personality greatly ties into this mythology here, where it wants to fight, it's aggressive, um, and I think that's really cool because it just, it's this great notice, this great wink to uh, all to this culture that's been around for so long, and I think that's just awesome that they're. You know, paying tribute. All right, so we talked about uh, Tapu Koko. I want to talk about Lele because that is the powerhouse. That is the one you see on every OU team out there. What can you tell me about Lele? It's annoying. 
took me 70 Pokeballs to catch it, like I couldn't get it. <laughs> it took me like six. I don't know, it didn't like me. Um, no, uh, so all serious nights, Lele is really based on uh, Kane, which is like the highest of the four major Hawaiian deities. And uh, Kane is associated with like life, and it gives life, and it's the creator god. And it's also associated with like dawn, or the sun and sky meeting. Uh-uh. Oh, oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, Lycanroc. Oh, I get it. Yeah. I get it. So here's the thing. Going back to these cultures, it says in the beginning there was nothing but Po, which is like an endless black chaos. So you know, if you know anything about other mythos and other pantheons, uh, a lot of cultures have the idea that the universe came from like a dark chaos. And so um, Kane actually was sentient and recognized that he was separate from the Po, and he pulled himself free by just sheer force. And then uh, Sensei Kane, you know, Lono and Ku also pulled themselves free. And so it kind of was Kane was pushing back against Ko with light, kind of trying to bring the universe into whole. And so they created the lesser gods together, then they created uh, the spirits, and then they created like the world. And so from clay, they gathered red clay, and then they created the clay and to make man and so then they used like a special clay to create the head and again this kind of reminds me the imagery here with the with the z move for the tapus where you have this body of dirt and clay rising from the ground and the tapu themselves becomes like the head um and i think that's just it's really cool this homage to that culture um so the other thing is is that when you look in the anime you know you see it's character being depicted as helpful it's healing people you know it's taking care of things and this really kind of i think is a nod to kane uh himself kind of being the creator and the helper and while some people say the design reminds them of butterflies which is fine um i want to talk about the the shiny design in particular because the shiny designs of all the tapus I think is is very important. Do you know what color they are? Um, aren't most of them, if not all of them, like black? I know Tapu Bulu is like completely black. Yeah, they're all black. And so here's the thing. What I what I would honestly say, and I know we were going to talk about like Sandy Gas uh, in the original plot for this episode. We were going to talk about its shiny sprite too because it has Hawaiian roots. Um, I really think it kind of plays homage to um, the Tapu, uh, the gods coming out of Poe, because Poe is darkness and chaos. And the fact that they're all kind of like pushing out of this shell, I think I think that's just kind of a cool little nod of the hat there, because they could have made the shiny, you know, any color they wanted. But what, what, I mean, pink like every other water type ever. Yeah, but they chose this color, and I think it, I think it was for like a definite reason. I I will say this is for this game comparative to all others, they did the best job at matching the culture and the ecology to the game and i i'm not saying i don't love the other games and while i will say the japanese regions clearly do well to depict japan um you know cultural things and spiritual things in the games don't necessarily fit uh like you know it doesn't fit shintoism or, or buddhism by any means and especially unova you know there's genies we don't that's not like an american thing or you have yeah, if you want an american game you get me the the new jersey devil or the moth man that go. is an american legendary there you go um or even you know Kalos, it had norse mythology and so the fact that everything matches so well here i think is just is just a great sign of respect because it just it's so perfectly calculated 
to match the culture it's based on. No, it is really amazing the amount of work they put into this, just the culture of the game. Alright, so let's wrap this up. We got two more to get through here, and I know we're reaching the end of our episode. So, um, Bulu is clearly based upon the deity Lono, which is the Hawaiian god associated with fertility, agriculture, rainfall, music, and peace. My kind of god. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's the real, real fun god to hang with. Um, Lono, um, is associated with a lot of agriculture and planting traditions. So, um, he's also identified with bringing, like, the rain and, like, good harvest and all that great stuff. And so... I feel like this ties in directly to with uh, Tapu Bulu's ability. Um, if you think about his ability, he creates you know he creates plant growth <laughs> by bringing in grassy terrain. He's essentially creating plant growth in the animation, and I think that kind of ties in well and gives homage to Lono um, and you know the idea of bringing life through rains and and food and the harvest kind of ties into that whole healing ability too. Yeah, and I even think the design of it as a bowl kind of ties into that symbol of agriculture and livestock. And yeah, again, it goes into like what would be considered a Eurocentric view of agriculture and livestock, but I really feel like it fits the whole thing here that, you know, they're really connecting on traditions. Yeah, a lot of cultures have, a lot of cultures have used bulls and cows as livestock. And, it, and you are right, it is more Eurocentric because bulls and livestock did not exist on these islands. No. So it was probably, yeah, it, it, what, they weren't around for that. <laughs> no. um, so finally, we're going to talk about Fini, who is based on uh, Kanaloa, um, who's typically symbolized by like a squid or uh, octopus. It's the god of the ocean. Best ocean animal. Yeah. Just saying. Best ocean animal. So, and I want to do a real quick side note here. Um, some There are depictions of Kanaloa as like a god of evil or death because of like relations it has with spirituality and like the depth part of the oceans the depth the deep parts of the ocean jeez louise this is a very uh eurocentric viewpoint too um and a lot of this comes from christian impact on hawaii um where they took those customs and try and applied them to their viewpoint um because kanaloa is not evil by any means and it's not like Satan as the as Europeans tried to make that connection. It's just not. So here's the thing, though, I want to say. You know, we do recognize clearly it's based on a swordfish from Ireland, giving a montage to it being the god of the ocean. Um, I'm interested to see if the games add more, especially with Feeny and Bulu, about their... Uh, you know their roles or even when they finally do show up in the anime you know what kind of personalities do they have and does it match this like the other two have so far the last thing i do want to say about this is that some people think it's based on a siren and i find this to be a little bit too eurocentric because it kind of it ties into that whole kind of loa kind of being a bringer of death which we know isn't part of the traditional hawaiian view i mean because being called a siren is not really a good thing no, they're not. No. Yeah, no, it's, you don't really think of the sirens as the kind, charitable Girl Scouts who sell you cookies. They draw you in and eat you, and that's kind of their whole thing. Yeah, they're not they're, they're not very helpful. They're pretty evil. So, yeah, but there's a lot here, and I'm just, I, again, I gotta say, like, I'm really, after doing all this reading and seeing how much more we couldn't cover, I think they just did, they did a phenomenal job really tying in the culture um, and really trying to give homage to the culture. Um, and so with that, I think that's, I think we're going to wrap it up here. I think we're at the, uh, the end of our episode. All 
Alright guys, so that does wrap up the time that we have. I want to thank you guys so much for listening to us. We love getting a chance to do this. And we wanted to let you guys know that we are on Twitter now. We are on a bunch of different social medias. Um, For Twitter, it's PokeSciencePodcast, at Pokemon Science. So if you want to just type in at Pokemon Science, you'll find us. Um, Drop suggestions for episodes, or let us know what you think, or if you just want to say hi. Um, We'll be there, we'll be listening, and I'd really love to hear from you. Yeah, also, um, we're on both Podbean and iTunes, so please subscribe, you know, share the links, tell your friends, um, you know, give a five-star review if you're on iTunes, write a review. Uh, We appreciate the support, and it kind of encourages us to keep Mm -hmm. going. Um, if you're not into too much social media, don't worry, we got you covered. We have uh, an email, pokescience at yahoo.com, so you can go ahead and find us there if you need to. Um, and pokescience, uh, we're also on uh, the Facebook, so you can find us as Poke Apostrophe Science page on Facebook. Um, also, uh, you can find us as the Science of Pokemon group on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash groups slash science of Pokemon. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you guys in the next episode. Bye-bye, everybody. Peace out.